As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Trippier on first time to Almiron. Then gets it back from Bruno. Oh, what a goal! Big Hello and welcome to Pod on the Tyne, your go-to Newcastle United podcast from The Athletic. Coming up on this week's show. Miggy, 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 Armouron spearheads our Fulham route. A year to remember, we take stock of the club's progress 12 months on from the takeover. And Ollie Kay is here to tell us whether Newcastle United are making a splash in the Gulf. Yes, hello, this is Pod on the Tyne, your go-to Newcastle United podcast from The Athletic. I'm Taylor Payne, and once again, I'm joined, flying solo this week, uh, by Newcastle United correspondent Chris Woff. How the devil are you, Chris Woff? I am sort of solo, but equally, you, it is going to be as if George was here for a segment of the podcast as well, isn't it? Like, haunt, like he's haunting us from wherever he is. He's not here, but he's always here, isn't he? Always listening, <laughs> always watching. Well, I, I did. My cousin did uh, did text me on Saturday and said that she was looking forward to the podcast because she was looking forward to to George and you absolutely rinsing me about Miguel Almiron. So she's going to get she's going fifty percent of that. Don't yeah. you worry about that, young man. George might not be here, but you're still getting rinsed. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare for a rinsing the likes of which you have never seen. You'll not have been rinsed this well since the last time you went to get that ridiculous haircut of yours, Chris. <laughs> how are you anyway? How 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 is life at the Taylor Payne household? Yeah, I'm, I'm in a uh, good mood. I'm in a good mood. It's been a nice weekend. I've been busy and working and stuff like that, but uh, the match on uh, on Saturday really tops it off, doesn't it? it? Gives you a little spring in your step as you go into Monday. It's lovely. Yeah. None of that national break crap that we had the week before instead just in our Newcastle going to Craven Cottage and leaving gloriously victorious it was an absolute thrashing wasn't it I've been saying for a couple of weeks somebody is going to get a hiding off us at some point when everything comes together and my word it came together didn't it the highest 90 minutes of XG in the Premier League this season from Newcastle United what a result I mean 
Fulham were the, the masters of their own downfall, weren't they? But it was still a fantastic performance. It was, and he had to put that sort of start into context. Yeah, Newcastle's XG, expected goals, which is basically uh, a metric used to, to measure the likelihood that someone will score from, from a certain position, trying to, to, to really work out the quality of shots, was 3.55, which is the highest of any team in any 90 minutes this this season. Newcastle have got two uh, of those in the top seven. The, the Palace, they were, they were 2.83, but nobody else has got beyond 3.5. And I think it shows that really they could and probably should have had more than the four goals that they, that oh, they yeah, scored. Absolutely. The opportunities that they had. And yeah, Fulham, Fulham helped them with, with Nathaniel, Nathaniel Shabala getting sent off, rightly so. Um, it was it was rightly upgraded to a red card, in my opinion. I don't think it was intentional, but it was reckless and it was dangerous. Yeah, and, He could have really uh, hurt Sean Longstaff, couldn't he, if... You know, he could have done it. If Mar- the foot had been planted or or something like that, there, there could have been a right angle break. Of that. And Marco Silva's defence of that was was pretty peculiar, really. I don't know why he was he was he was. I mean, I suppose he was just trying to look for an excuse for his team because they completely folded. But actually, before that, Newcastle had already it started the game on the front foot. That started in a dominant fashion. They, they should have scored by that stage. Callum Wilson had already toe poked wide uh, after Dan Burns right footed t- uh, half volley on the turn, which was astonishing, <laughs> astonishing. <laughs> Unbelievable. Don't, well, don't know what he's doing there. Commentator didn't know what he was doing there. Thought it was Sean Longstaff. <laughs> absolutely incredible. Did you see, just to speak of Dan Byrne, actually, I have to mention this. There was one point when he'd done an absolutely lung-busting overlap past the Jacob Murphy, who, and he didn't get the ball. And he just turned around and trotted back back into his own half. <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah. I was like, what's he doing? <laughs> it was, but in terms of... Of the, the the day, yes, it helped that Fulham went down ten men. But if you compare it to Bournemouth and a team sitting deep and Newcastle having no idea really of how to break them down, yeah. and the difference that they had to score soon after Fulham had gone down to ten men, and then to just compound that by just keep keep going at Fulham to moving the ball quickly from side to side, yeah, uh, making sure that that they're tired Fulham out, waiting patiently, but then when the time was there, springing on it. And I think there was two reasons why they looked so different. I think, first of all, Callum Wilson being back was absolutely massive. Yeah, huge. He just, the, the rest of the team just looks so much more confident and like they believe that they can and will score goals when Callum Wilson's there. Uh, his presence, just the way that he dragged around Harrison Reed. I mean, I felt for Harrison Reed because he's the only midfielder, but but also Callum Wilson embarrassed him a few times. Where just winning free kicks in his own in in his own half or at midway, just 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 really controlling the game. And then the other element was, I think, that they managed to get Bruno onto the ball and in the right positions, and he just dictated play. And it was it was it was he was just he was just pulling the strings from deep, and Fulham just didn't have a single answer to it. On the the subject of Callum Wilson, some news today as well: a new contract for him, the most important player on our squad. You'd probably say at the moment, uh, it's good news, isn't it? Another what? How many two, three years in the bank for him? And uh, it it's a good move from Newcastle. It's you know you're looking towards the future. It, he's going to be a great option to have around if we do go out and spend money on a on a big name strike. I mean we've already bought Alexander Isak, but having Callum Wilson around the squad is only going to be good news, isn't it? Yeah. So that was David Ornstein, uh, my colleague at the Athletic, who wrote this in his, his Monday column that Wilson has already signed. Uh, an extension. Uh, I think it takes him through to 2025 to begin with, but also has the option for potential another couple of years. Uh, and it puts him in line with Newcastle's highest earners. He actually turned down a greater salary from Aston Villa to come to Newcastle in the first place in 2020. And his importance to the team, as, as we keep saying, is is huge. And and he the frustration with them is, is trying to keep him fit because when he's fit, 
Newcastle are a completely different prospect, and he and he scores goals as 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 he did on Saturday. But even even taking that away, even if he plays only fifty percent of the matches as he roughly does, the effect that he still has on the team, and also part of the idea is that Wilson's thirty now, in two or three years' time, bringing on the likes of of Alexander Isak, who obviously has come up in front uh, up front. Chris Wood will probably be moved on in the next year or two and then bring in a younger striker as well who can work and learn from Wilson. Garan Cuyolo, the, the young lad they've just signed from, from Australia, he's someone else who can really learn from Callum Wilson. So to keep him around to tie him down is, is, is a great bit of business and I think is a huge boost for everyone in around Newcastle. Yeah, it's great news. Uh, and he did uh, get on the score sheet as well against Fulham, although he did steal that goal off Joe Willock, didn't he? Let's be honest. It was it was one of those headers from Joe Willock that goes straight down into the floor and then back up again. Uh, but Wilson, it's going in, isn't it? It's probably hitting the inside the post and going in, if we're being honest. But a good striker puts those away, doesn't he? He does. I, I was trying to remember earlier which game it was that Joe Linton did something similar <laughs> about 18 months, two years ago. And he was trying to be generous to his teammate, but the ball actually bounced out. And there is a slight chance it would have bounced back out after the post. But even if it wasn't going to, Callum Wilson, it was like David Nugent on his England debut when he scored when it was going over the line. It's like, that's <laughs> yeah. what that's what, that's what what strikers do. And Wilson, wow. Wilson, <laughs> Will- <laughs> I haven't heard any David Nugent for a while, the big Nugent. My word. Wilson was 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 delighted, and I spoke to him afterwards in the in the mix. And I sort of said to him, I said, "Did did um did you and Joe have a bit of an argument in the in the dressing room after the game?" And he sort of said, "Well, he said we had a bit of a laugh and joke about it, but I I've said that I'll, I'll buy him dinner." And then I sort of own one. But what I loved about and what it showed about Wilson was A, when we spoke to him again afterwards, is he basically he's annoyed at himself, first of all, for missing a couple of other chances, including the one early on where he sort of said, I'm not going to make excuses. I have high standards, but maybe it was a bit of rustiness because I haven't played in a while. I don't know why I tried to toe poke yeah. it. So he's annoyed at himself for not scoring more. He was annoyed because Eddie Howe took him off. He said, I respected the yeah. decision, but I wanted to stay on. He wanted more goals, but obviously Howe is, is, is trying to protect his, his striker. And at that stage, it was exactly the right thing to do. But also that. That chance in the second half where Joe Willock bursts through in the left hand side of the box, shoots, and it's saved from a tight angle. And and when Wilson just shouts at me, you can hear him, you listen to Match Day, you can just hear him shouting at Willock as if to say, Give me the ball, I'm in yeah, this position. Put it across. Yeah, that's the difference. That is what you get with Callum Wilson that you don't have, have without him. He is he is just so hungry to score more goals. And funnily enough, the next time Willock got the ball in that position, he put it across the six yard box. <laughs> Wilson missed it and it and Almiron put it in. So it was just you know, Willock must have listened to him. Uh, Willock, though, had a great game, didn't he? It was a superb display from him. Probably one of his best in a black and white shirt, I would say. And he's looking for that consistency now, isn't he? And starting to build that. He gives great drive and energy from midfield, doesn't he? I think it was his best game. I was really impressed with him. And uh, it was it was that determination to get the ball, to run into spaces, to to really stretch that, that Fulham defence. We know the sort of engine that he has on him. And sometimes he frustrates. He doesn't get into the game often enough, but he was a constant threat and when we go if we go back to xg actually of all midfielders in the premier league joe willock has the highest xg for a midfielder who hasn't scored yet at 189 wow. and, and and again he should have he could and should have had a couple of goals against fulham he could and should have had a couple of goals against palace a few weeks ago he, he's starting to to bring a bit of of, of form seemingly into, into his performance the fact that he got two assists i thought his ball for almiron was excellent that oh, one that across the, 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 yeah. the left foot with his left foot as well um, so really, really pleased for him, and hopefully this this will start a, a hot streak because we know that when he gets on a streak, he can be uh, he can be very, very streaky. What he's added, he's added all round game to his to his play, hasn't he? It, before he was scoring goals in that 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 second half of that season when he scored goal after goal, uh, he was doing that, but but almost not a lot else, if you could say that. Um, 
His uh, his burst through the pitch into the box for the Bruno goal against Leicester last season showed the power he has going forward. And this year he's brought another uh, another element to his game. He's passing the ball around in midfield. He's making shapes and making forward runs and stuff like that. So he's just building that consistency and building that all round game, isn't he? But I think he's I think he's turning into a, a decent player in that midfield. And almost you, you look and you think, hmm. Ha- Who's going to start that midfield three, you know, because Joe Linton obviously missed out. Uh, Sean Longstaff, we haven't spoke about him. He came in, scored his first goal of the season, played well. Who's going to start in that midfield three? Longstaff was was great as well on Saturday. He was, and he was playing. I was surprised, actually, because when the team came out, I assumed he was going to be in the number six position and that he could move. Because I know that Howe wants to get Bruno Gimaraes higher up the pitch. He wants to get him in that number eight role. And actually, the way that the game turned out, he was basically basically playing with three number eights because there didn't need to be any... I mean, Newcastle's back four were basically camped inside the Fulham half. They were that high up the pitch they were able to be because Fulham just completely capitulated during that first half. But Longstaff, no, he was he was energetic. He took his goal well. I thought that he burst again, burst in the box well, linked up well with, with, with other players. And, and it does it is nice to have that sort of hopefully positive form once Shelby comes back to have those decisions to be made because you assume Joe Linton will come back into the team, certainly if Alan Saint-Maximan's there to cover him. But it was nice that Howe didn't have to bring Joe Linton on on, on Saturday. He yeah. didn't have to risk him in the end because the, the game was already done and the midfielders were playing so well. Elliot Anderson get, got to come on and got it nearly half an hour, which was really good for him. Further experience his part. And he again showed some very nice touches so it's 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 good to have this what is seemingly building a bit of strength and depth these players as I wrote about in, in my piece after the match these players I was particularly talking about the forwards but if you look at midfielders and other positions as well these players know that they have to raise their levels otherwise they're not going to be at Newcastle United for the long term that this is the club which intends to go places and if, if they are going to stay here then they, they need to really perform as uh, as I will eat humble pie and say that Miguel Alm- Almiron certainly certainly did well, Chris, you know, we have to do this and George wouldn't forgive me if I didn't do this. I know the listeners wouldn't forgive me if I didn't do this. The day belongs to Miggy Van Basten and he is mugging you off big time at the minute, Christopher Woff. What is going on? Chris, come on. You have to, surely now, you have to put your hands up and say he's doing well. Two goals. That first goal is beautiful. And he is a part of the team. He's an important part of the team. And I know you're a stubborn bugger. And I know you won't do it. You need to put your hands up and say, come on, it's fine. I genuinely, at first, refused to believe that he intended to do the, to score that first goal. No, for a fact, no, you no, no. thought that. But, but, so I, I, but having seen it several times, I'm going to concede that he did mean it, and it's phenomenal. The way that he watches the ball, I mean, it's a, yeah. the, the first of all, the, the ball, well, actually, as well. start from the very start of the move again, when I said that Newcastle moved Fulham from side to side, it was a throwing on the right-hand side that Kieran Trippier takes. Newcastle move it from right to left, then come back across to the left-hand side, so they're moving Fulham in and out of position, and then Almer pulls it back inside to Bruno who he plays so much better when he's in the team and they're, they're trying to find him you can see he's now trying to advance in the box more and he he, he runs beyond uh, the Fulham left back and then Bruno dinks that wonderful ball and he watch, you can see him craning his neck back to, to try and to try and watch the ball and then just swings his left foot and the way that it moves the dip and it, it's it, it is an absolutely astonishing strike Something it, was, else, wasn't it? It, was, it was like a momentary silence within Craven yeah. Cottage where everyone was trying to work out what was going on um, and it was you can just see that he's always smiling, but that cheeky smirk he had when all the players came to celebrate with him was just I couldn't believe it. It was it was astonishing. When the ball went past Leno into that far corner, I was just I was just stunned into silence. I was just like, 
it took us about three or four seconds to compute what had happened and then ah, he scored <laughs> it was just amazing but that pass by Bruno beautiful shape on it just looped it over and Miggy and it's not an easy it's it's not an easy chance we know that but the run he makes he bends his run and then as he watches that ball come over his shoulder as it drops that's got to be one of the hardest techniques for a for a forward to finish a ball like that and 99 footballers out of 100 take that ball with their right foot but as we already know Miguel Almiron only yeah. uses his right leg to stand on and he just pings it into the top corner on the outside of his boot and the, the lovely shape as it just arcs over Leno it was beautiful it was great it was it was probably the best goal we've scored this season I think and I, I agree with you most most would have taken about it it's, a, it's, a, it's the way the ball was moving it probably was a shot you would usually take on with your right that seems the more natural but not but everyone yeah. for Miguel Almiron but I, I do think that actually Eddie Howe in some ways will have been more pleased with the second goal that's Almiron getting into the box mm, that, that's him be, following yeah. in where he needs to be yeah. and that's three goals now this season that's a decent, very decent return by this stage and I really really do hope joint this top is, this scorer is Chris kicking, joint top scorer no but I really really hope this is him kicking on we didn't see it in, in the last couple of games and I feel justified in having said what I did then but this is what we want to see from Almiron more regularly and if he can perform like this then that is exactly what Eddie Howe wants to see and maybe it makes him revise going forward whether right-sided forward is as much of a priority as it was during the summer and it needs to be. Almiron is really, he really did deliver on Saturday and it was it was the fact that he looked hungry from one. He should have had that third. I mean, in some ways, he, he, I mean, both him and Fraser for getting their goals disallowed. You feel, why are we actually offside? You didn't, neither didn't actually need to needed be to be offside. But still, the way that he finished that one as well was, a, yeah. was showed real confidence, and hopefully that is what's going to be there going forward. And as I say, I think that when he plays with Bruno Gimaraes, I think that there's just a bit of an understanding there between the two of them. Gimaraes plays the ball perfectly into his path, and Almiron is now trying to actually get in around the right-hand side of the box. You have both the number eights overlapping and underlapping, as well as with the wingers, and that's really serving them well. Fulham have to feel a little bit unlucky, don't they? I mean, they had the injury to Mitrovic, uh, the red card as well, although they are kind of architects of their own downfall in a way. They didn't kind of... There's a way to play, isn't there, when you go down at 10 men and they just struggle to to adapt. <clears throat> but how much do we mitigate our rating for this performance based on what happened to the opposition? Well, that's that, that's the very difficult one to, to quantify, really, because, I mean, the thing I will say really positive for Newcastle was how many of their first 11 really weren't actually there. As we've already said, I mean, Joe Linton wasn't starting, Alan Sam Maximan wasn't, wasn't there, team, Alexander yeah. Isak wasn't playing, John Josh Shelby's still not back, and they still managed to play that way. So... There, there are definite positives, and given how they played against Bournemouth and the way that they actually scored goals this time compared to then, I'd say that they deserve a, a heck of a lot of credit for that. But it's it's one thing doing it against a 10-man newly promoted side to doing it regularly, but what I think is it should give Newcastle huge confidence. And so for that reason, uh, I'd take far more positives than just saying that, that Fulham did help them. There, there obviously is that caveat, but I do think it, it hopefully generates posi- positive momentum at a time that they sort of need it. I bet Sir Maximum was sitting watching that thing and just get me on that pitch. Just let me at, let me at them, scrappy-do. Let us at them. I will have a go at these lot all day long. He would have loved to have been on that pitch, wouldn't he, the way Fulham were playing? He could have caused some real damage. Um, regardless of marks out of 10 for the performance, it was an absolutely huge three points, wasn't it? Newcastle only had one win under their belt uh, so far this season. That makes it two. It pushes us up the table uh, and things are starting to look a little bit more healthy, aren't they? They are. And I mean, I thought it was interesting that Howe said publicly after the game that how big a win it was and that he'd reiterate, he'd basically said to the players, he said, I wasn't shy to tell them that we desperately 
do need a, a positive result in this match. It felt like an important moment in the season. Obviously, Newcastle are, are seventh now in the table, but it was more about the fact that if they weren't going to beat Fulham or Brentford in the, in these two games, you start to look at the fixtures coming up, and it would have been sort of seven or eight games without a win. And, you, and eventually, the positive performance metrics that we've mentioned, if confidence starts to drop, they'll start to lose belief in the way that they're playing, and then where do you go from there? So how I'd spoken to people in and around the club last week, and they'd sort of suggested that there'd been conversations maybe within the, within this sort of group, within uh, levels of the club, basically saying we recognise that these two matches, these back-to-back games against Fulham and Brentford, are very significant. And uh, you could see the relief. Did you see how, after the match, I mean, he always goes across to the supporters, but I've never seen that sort of reaction that there was from him afterwards, where he sort of, he, he, he waited for the longest after everyone, he went in front of the fans, fist-pumped and sort of roared, Get in, and you could just yeah. see that the relief the for him. Yeah, that this yeah. is this is this is a win that Newcastle needed at this moment. Absolutely. So, performance of the day, Chris, Joe Willock, Callum Wilson. I mean, it's Miguel Almiron, isn't it? Let's be honest. But an outsider, a wild card. Uh, what about Shola Amiobi on Soccer AM? That was some performance, wasn't it? It was. He wasn't. He wasn't <laughs> going to be outdone by Miguel Almiron scoring a volley. He was going to do one of his own, and then Smashing I mean, them just, in from all just, angles, wasn't he? Yeah, just. I mean, we obviously knew he would score a penalty because this is what yeah. that's what Shola Amiobi does. I mean, you just imagine there was a Sunderland player stood in front of him. Shola being Shola, isn't it? But yeah, quite. Yeah, just just get him get him in the squad. You know, if they get him get him in the squad in January when you can change the squad around a little bit, get him back. Amazing stuff. Fantastic at volleys and penalties. Not so good at tidying up. He's flat. <laughs> I'm Sholam Yobi. Welcome to my crib. This uh, coffee table uh, is fantastic. You don't get to see many of these uh, coffee tables around. Walk-in wardrobe. I'm still trying to tidy a few things up. I love wearing hats. What a man, what a man. It's still on YouTube. For anyone who hasn't seen it, watch it on YouTube. It's brilliant. God bless him. Shola Amiobi and all that sail in him. Anyway, uh, time for a short break for you listeners, and then you can hear a conversation Chris and I had with the Athletics senior writer, George Colgan, on the occasion of the first anniversary of the takeover. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're recording this section on September 28th, which means that a year ago today, we had no idea what was about to happen. Let's start with that defeat to Wolves, 2-1 down at Molyneux, another vintage encounter and another premium fixture discarded by Chris Woff. Uh, George, you had to suffer the uh, the ignominy of uh, a trip to the Black Country in the pissing rain. And to add insult to injury, you had to report on yet another defeat. 
I can't say I enjoyed that. I would say at this point that I was paid to be there, unlike <laughs> the Newcastle fans who um, who filled out the away end. And so I do, before we get on and talk about the match, I do want to sort of give a shout out to them. I had a lot of friends in the away end this weekend and to a man and woman, they've just all said how flat it was. And I do think that kind of sums up the state of the club at the minute where people sort of know that their anger won't really lead anywhere. And it was a, yeah, it was a miserable afternoon by the end of it. Quite a lot has happened, George, hasn't it, since those heady days listening back to us, our chirpy youthful voices. It's incredible. I mean, I can't believe a year's gone. I mean, that's the that's that's the first thing. I mean, parts of it feel very long when you think back to sort of October and some of the football that we were seeing and the wait for a win and all of that. But really, it's just raced. It's raced by. It's a great chance, a great opportunity to sort of put everything into perspective, isn't it? I mean, it's still, you know, I, I still have that sort of pinch yourself feeling about a lot to do with the club. I think Bournemouth was the first time that we didn't really have that sort of feeling inside the stadium that we have had post-takeover, but going to games is a is a pleasure. I mean, that's the first and biggest thing. And of course, yeah, new owners, new manager, now a sporting director, CEO, and a club that has been transformed on and off the pitch with the ambition to do something, to do something special, to get bigger, to grow, to include fans... You know, it's Newcastle behaving as a football club again. Chris, this 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 year has gone in a blur, hasn't it? And it just, I, I can't get my head around the fact it's a year later. I sort of can't really comprehend how time works anymore because in the in the weeks, <laughs> in the in the, in the so three or four weeks after the takeover, we never saw basically the outside world. Other than it was just there was so much going on. It it felt. Like it was passing very quickly, but at the same time was going on forever, and I was never going to leave the looking at the same four walls. But if you think about how much has has happened over the course of the last year and, and where it is now, I could yeah, it doesn't feel like a year ago in that sense. But the football club does feel transformed. Certainly, that the city feels transformed in so many ways. Just the the mood, uh, the enthusiasm, the interest. The football that we are watching now is just light years away from 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 what it was before. It's it, it's impossible to list how much has already happened, and yet we are still only at the very start of the journey. Really, we had seven eight months of that journey, which was we just had to survive, and then and then it was to focus on the future. and And I think there's an exciting time ahead for, for the whole club. I mean, it made it difficult to come and do this job because I found it really hard to watch. Newcastle at all. I found that there was there was my weekends were better served uh, doing other things, spending time with the family, all that sort of stuff. You know, I wasn't prepared to put put my money in the club anymore. I had stopped going to games. Now it feels completely different. I mean, I, I do feel fully engaged with the club again. Me and my little lad have been going back to games as often as we can, and we've we've got tickets for the uh, for the Brentford game coming up, and we can't wait to go back. And it just feels like a different world it, it it feels so fresh and and um so new to us you know it's just chalk and cheese it just feels like a different football club altogether i think we really deserve the most credit for for sticking it out with, for sticking with the podcast during that <laughs> during that year or whatever we were doing it so. i'm amazed we didn't come to blows in that time even though, even remotely recording in the, in our separate houses we would have found a way to reach through the internet and punch each other somehow. How did we find different things to talk about? I mean, I know we were still writing stuff, Chris, and, but that's sort of different. 
anyway, we we got through it. We've got through it, and yeah, it's it as you say, it's chalk and cheese, night and day, all those cliches. It's just a different club, and it's a great club to be around. It is, uh, and like I said, I don't want to compare uh, the new owners to the previous bloke too much because that's a bit too easy, if we're being honest. If we were to compare them to the Premier League's other owners, uh, Chris, how are they stacking up in the job that they've done so far? I think that they have surprised a lot of people in terms of, I think there's been a surprise even maybe among supporters as to how it's gone about. Because when obviously when the takeover first happens, the narrative is, quote-unquote, richest club in the world. And we, we know, as we've spoken about so many times since, that that is not, not the case. Um, necessarily. They have, in theory, the wealthiest backers in the world in theory, but that doesn't mean that all that money is going to go into it and that is not the plan going forward. And it's not, there hasn't been, there haven't been the marquee signings, they haven't gone out and signed the equivalent of Robinho. January was very smart additions who were going to improve the team for that very specific uh, objective, which was to survive. Can you imagine if in October October the 7th when the takeover happened, if they said Newcastle striker signing in January is going to be Chris Wood for £25 million on Burnley? Yeah. That would have just would it would have it would have astonished you. So I think in terms of that, I think there's been a lot of sensible uh, yes, Newcastle have spent two, around £210 million in two transfer windows. They have spent money, but I think that they've spent it largely wisely. I mean, we we can't really judge all of the summer signings yet, but if you compare it to someone like Everton, who over yeah. the, have wasted so much money over the course of the last few years. Even West Ham have spent a lot of money. Villa have spent a heck of a lot of money. I think that they've spent the money wisely. I think they've tried to build and they have tried to think long term, which is not necessarily what I think a lot of people would have thought they were going to do. So to compare them to other Premier League clubs, they say themselves they want to be like Manchester City and Liverpool. Eddie Howe talks about that from a footballing point of view. Kieran Trippier, when I spoke to him the other week, talked about being like Man City and Liverpool at home and dominating teams. But the club themselves say that they want to be among that established elite. They want to be there and they want to remain and they're looking longer term at that and it's not just about the short term partially the, na- the narrative chris was also amanda staveley murdad gadusi don't know what they're doing and um that it will be chaos now the chaos part i will you know i'll say there was the, there is partially that's based in truth because they were firefighting and they've spent they've spent a lot of the first six eight months firefighting there's been no executive structure at Newcastle. We know that. The first transfer window in particular was chaotic. But, as Chris said, the amazing thing is that they came through that, they all worked together, they all chipped in, and they came out with the batch of signings that Newcastle needed, you know, with a nice bit of gloss in terms of Bruno. But they got the signings at Newcastle there and then needed to stay up, and they stayed up. And that achievement, that achievement in itself is remarkable. That can't be overstated. Newcastle had no right to stay up from the position they were in. No other team had done it, and they did it. So they passed their first big test. And again, I think that's the thing that for people who, yes, have been involved in football on the periphery but have not had experience of running a football club, is that in spite of all the siren voices around the game, they have not been seduced by that, and that albeit it's taken a long time to get some decisions signed off, they have ended up with properly serious, substantive people in positions of responsibility. There's no guarantee, of course, that it all comes together, that it all works. But they have given themselves a great chance because they've gone that route. They've done nothing stupid. And, you know, I I, I think that has surprised a lot of people. 
So we've written this, basically, we've written this big piece, Chris and I, about the takeover one year on, how it's perceived in and out of the club, what they think the strengths are, you know, blah, 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 all the rest of it. But Chris, you've you've spoken to sort of other Premier League executives, and I think there's been a sense of surprise within the game as well about how they've handled it, hasn't there? There was a lot of paranoia speaking to to, to those executives that spoke about the, those sort of Premier League meetings where early on, obviously, the Premier League clubs moved quite swiftly to try and bring in restrictions on related party transactions. And the only two clubs who voted against it were Manchester City and Newcastle. And that was, in theory, to stop Newcastle being able to use PIF and their companies and bring in sort of shirt sponsorships and things which may be seen as being inflated market value. But beyond that, the Newcastle have tried to, to reach out and work with those clubs and... What has been interesting is that they, they do see a lot of what Newcastle have done sensible. They see particularly Dan Ashworth, but also Darren Eels now as very wise appointments. And the fact that Newcastle have also gone for that, where they've gone for Darren Eels, is going to, his focus is going to be commercial and off the field. And then you have Dan Ashworth, who's in charge of the football side, and they sort of come together to report to the board and to have that split structure. Obviously, Newcastle previously, what did they have? They had Lee Charnley as a managing director. He was the only director at the club. There was no real board by that stage. Newcastle have tried to establish this and then obviously Dan Ashworth has several departments who filter into him the theory is going to be that Darren Eels over time was, as he builds that will have exactly the same he'll have commercial he'll have supporter liaison all these sorts of different directions but then another thing which I found interesting was that Newcastle in Premier League meetings at least the view of some of, of, of other Premier League clubs outside of the sort of uh, so-called big six have seen Newcastle as having sided to a certain degree or at least tended to side in some arguments seem to lean towards those sort of elite clubs primarily because what they see is that they think that Newcastle see themselves as becoming that which obviously we know is is the plan going forward and so that has been intriguing in that sense that 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 Newcastle or they, they aren't there yet are already thinking longer term in terms of that as well and obviously splits in terms of money and 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 I'm sure it's to do with merit-based payments and things like that I don't know that for certain but but that will be what the conversations tend to be about with these sorts of things so already there's been a shift in what Newcastle were previously which was a a club who in a lot of Premier League meetings weren't visible at all didn't really speak and when they did it was to tend to complain about things it was all uh, that they sided with the likes of Crystal Palace they tended to vote with historically whereas now it's been a lot of change and Newcastle themselves are trying to affect that change as well. And George, the, the, the first year does come with a significant honeymoon period, doesn't it? There's an element of good faith from the fans as well. They're waiting to see what's going to happen and what decisions are going to be made. Do we think the owners are still within that honeymoon period or are people ready to start seeing some real action and real change now? I think it is. I mean, I think it is. I mean, as I said earlier, it felt like Bournemouth was the first time it's felt different inside the stadium post-takeover. But, you know, there were very specific reasons for that. And I, I hope and think that was a kind of one-off. But yeah, I mean, there is just that mood of positivity around the club, around the city. You you want that to last for as long a time as possible. I guess at some point, I mean, one of the questions we've been asking for this piece is, does patience have to be a feature of the second year post-takeover? And we'll come on to talk about some of the challenges that are still, still ahead. But they're not moving away from their original timeline. Absolutely not in terms of five to ten years to be up there challenging, to be winning things with the biggest clubs. They're not moving away from that. But certainly on the pitch, there's no getting away from the fact that this is going to be a transitional kind of season. It just has to be. And they absolutely cannot do everything all at once in terms of transfers. At some point, they will hit bumps in the road. And yeah, I think that's just natural. I mean, they had it when they walked into the club in terms of staying up. 
But they've earned, you know, they've earned patience. If we're talking about the first year, you have to talk about the job Eddie Howe's done, the sensational job that he's done. Yeah, He does deserve our patience too. But yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that overall, you just have to look at it and say, this is a club that has momentum behind it. That momentum certainly shouldn't go anytime soon. And we should, I think, you know, enjoying the ride is a big is a big part of it. The biggest compliment I can pay to the ownership is that Newcastle United now feels like a functioning football club. <laughs> yeah, it's and no longer fundamental, is it? Let's yeah. be honest. And that sounds ridiculous, <laughs> and it sounds like a fundamentally stupid point. It's true, but though. equally, that is everything. It is trying to be a sporting institution, which is trying to better itself. It isn't existing just for merely existing. They are investing in a training ground, which in a few years' time, they're going to move basically raise to the ground because they want a new one. But they know that in the meantime, they need a better training ground. They've already started that. They did the work over the summer. They're going to do more work during the World Cup. They've taken the, the team away for both training camps and also team bonding sessions away in, in Dubai and things like that. There was no question, if you need to go and do that, go and do it. Whereas previous trips that Rafa Benitez tried to do, the hierarchy would almost penny pinch and say, well, that's going to cost too much to get this flight. We don't want to go there for this sort of period of time. They, they are trying to make the, the, the stadium more atmospheric. Even just that, that coat of paint and just putting up uh, what they have done in the concourse. Little things. Little things. So they have made significant progress. Easy wins, but they're tap-ins, but they should have been done so so long ago. Exactly. There were so many easy wins, but they've actually gone and tried to, to, to do a lot of them. And they've also gone above and beyond. I mean, they, they, they've gone above and beyond. They haven't just... The Newcastle previously, what did they have? They had a supporter liaison officer who was part-time in that role because he had so many other roles. Whereas Crew had, used to have two full-time... Uh, SLOs in 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 a, in a in a division three three below Newcastle. Now they aren't just setting up a support liaison officer. They're actually bringing in an entire department. They want to do this and they want to do things properly. And so huge progress has been made. But as I said earlier on, this is still just the start. And 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 in six months to seven eight months of this time has been taken up with with survival being the priority but they have dan ashworth in place they have darren eels and and yeah i just think that there is so much more change to come just just very briefly on the on the training ground i've seen some of the pictures of i mean really significant changes in terms of like moving the restaurant forward so there's more space for that doing a new shower block we remember those slightly unfair memes about training in the wheelie bins, the wheelie and bins like that. And the, but yeah. what they've actually done is they've made an investment which will be of around a million pounds on this hydrotherapy new hydrotherapy pools i mean that's pretty extraordinary when you consider that in maybe three years time they'll be moving away from this training ground into a purpose-built training ground which they want to be the best in the country there's other bits like around the academy They've made huge investments, so Newcastle managed to retain their Academy 1 status during the Ashley years, but the spend at the Academy was effectively half the average in the Premier League, and that investment has now gone right up. The only restrictions now on the Academy are their facilities. So Newcastle already kind of like bursting at the seams in terms of that. But that, you know, that stuff's been done behind the scenes, and it's about this change of philosophy and again, a phrase that they use a lot at the club since Darren Hill's arrival in particular. It's a it's a kind of Americanism, but it's like going from surviving to thriving. And that is a big change in mindset. Interestingly, I mean, what what do we want to see over the next 12 months? There's been a lot has happened in the last 12 months. What do we think the plan is going forward? So, I mean, again, I think we have to remember that we really are at the start of something. It's not reasonable to expect at this point for Newcastle to be a fully-fledged 
big company that can compete with other Premier League teams because they're just not like that. So the first few months has been about firefighting. It's about staying up. It's about deciding what kind of club they want to be. And it's about filling those big positions which they have now filled. But again, something that Darren Ailes talks about in particular at the club, he refers to Newcastle as a 130-year-old startup. Now, again, these are figures that they use within the club, but they point out to other big clubs in the Premier League, the likes of Man United, who supposedly have around 250 people working for them in the commercial department. Newcastle have a team of four on their commercial side. I mean, that is astonishing, and it just shows how far they they still have to go. There are big things that they need to get done. Front of shirt sponsorship, that's the first big deal that they need to kind of secure. And I think commercially, the next 12 months is going to, you know, that's going to be a huge part of it. They need to bring new people in. They need to get that moving because it's that that allows them to spend more on players. So really, we're at the start of something there still in in those terms. It's not sexy, (laughs) but it's that part of the club that needs to be regrown and where they have, you know, significant catch up to do. For me, in terms of the next 12 months, off the field, agree with George, commercial huge, finishing off the training ground, finalising that site of where they're going to move to next, if they can in that sort of period of time, presenting that vision for what what is the direction the club is going, hearing from those at the very top who are shaping that vision as to what that is going to be. But then on the field, I think that what we, we want to see from Newcastle is hopefully that squad just bolsters even further, that you have the sort of Botman burn debate in every single position or we are getting towards that with a lot more positions after the January window but probably more next summer where they can can make greater investment in the team that the squad does evolve further hopefully Eddie House there taking the team on pushing for that top eight position potentially certainly making sure that there's that there's no question about relegation then going forward maybe looking to to qualify for, for, for Europe within a couple of years that's what you want to see and I would also like to see Newcastle have made progress in in the cups and for them to not, not, not now not just to be in question whereas it's, it's, it still is in the minute just because we have those negative memories for so long Newcastle don't care about the cups and until they actually do progress in them I think that that hangover will still be there. And another of the kind of lovely and fascinating things off the pitch that's happening at the moment is that Newcastle are rebuilding relationships or beginning relationships that have either been just completely neglected or n- never happened. Amanda and Murdad are very personal people. They've they've started this process themselves in terms of opening up dialogue with people. But Darren Eels has had meetings with the university, for example, just exploring what that might mean, you know, in the future. And who knows? I mean, we do know that when Newcastle are in the Premier League, the university has far more interest from foreign students coming to the city. So is there something symbiotic that can work there? Who knows what that might be? But why not start talking? You're talking about two massive institutions in the same city. He's also met the council and and local politicians talking about how they could work together. I know that he's met with Sir Brendan Foster and Paul Foster, who's the chief executive of Great Run. Now, if you want to know about sporting excellence in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, I'm afraid that Newcastle United is not the first place you go to. I mean, hopefully, in two or three years' time, it will be. But if you want to know about sporting excellence in the in the northeast, it's the Great North Run, because it's managed to be the biggest and best half marathon, the first mass participation event that gets to a million people and is absolutely a bucket list 
half marathon, not because it can compete with London and New York and Paris in terms of infrastructure for the city, but because of the people. The fact he wants to pick Brendan Foster's head about that, I just think is beautiful. The the, the stadium, along with the Time Bridge, arguably, are the two most iconic structures in the city. It's about time the club took up that mantle and led and were good citizens. So I'm really excited about that. I don't know if you can hear it in the back chaps in the background, but just outside my window, sat on my shed, and I kid you not, this is happening right now, there was a magpie going absolutely crackers, chattering away. I don't know if you could hear it, but it was there as you were talking there, George, and I thought, oh, wow. What a- was it just one? <laughs> just one magpie, yeah. Oh, dear. Well, I can only see one. There might be another one somewhere around, but yeah, it oh, was dear. going wild. Anyway, rally into George's speech. That's what it was, yeah. yeah one for sorrow. There Absolutely. Uh, interestingly as well, chaps, it's also the anniversary of this moment. Can he play a colleague through? It's Jacob Murphy <laughs> released. Murphy one-on-one. Jacob Murphy to win it. Oh, oh no, just put no, it in the no. net! Is it actually the anniversary? That well, that's oh, remember. it's brilliant. I Love it. I remember that as well. Never get bored Oh, wonderful, that. wonderful stuff. Now, what I remember about that is as well is that after the game... Matthew Raisbeck came up to me and he's like, you have to listen to Ando's commentary. He's like, you have to listen to Ando's, co- Ando's commentary when, he, when uh, Jacob Murphy went clean through. And then obviously it was on social media by that night. So that was there. Uh, oh, that was towards the end of the game as well, wasn't it? And, and during yeah. the game, Ando just got more and more annoyed, didn't he? Like he started off quite calm. So Maxman had a chance that he didn't put away. And then Jacob Murphy went through one-on-one and then that happened and he just exploded. Fair enough, though. Just quickly before we go as well, George, I need to quiz you. Uh, the 1892 pledge from the NUFC uh, Fans Trust. Can we give us a bit of an update on that? Yeah, so just to very briefly recap. NUST, uh, sorry, I got the, got the words wrong. NUST, not no, NUFC. That's, that's okay. Newcastle United Supporters Trust. So back, back in the bad old days, <laughs> the Newcastle United Supporters Trust, led by Alex Hurst, were really scared about the club's future. I mean, partly it was about trying to raise funds to perhaps take a stake in the club, but probably more realistically, the thought of Newcastle dropping down divisions was not an idle thought. And the idea was that if that happened, if Newcastle kind of did a Sunderland um, in a couple of years, five years, ten years, that perhaps they would then be in a position to take a stake in the club. Now, I was very proud to be asked to be one of the pledge guardians, which meant that they they entrusted me with money, which just shows how absolutely stupid they were. But no, very you know that I was I was we 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 were kind of the the lock on the money to make sure it wasn't spent on anything it wasn't supposed to. Now in the end, the takeover happened, and this idea of Newcastle falling down the divisions, you know, d- didn't become wasn't realistic anymore. So in in that sense, it was a failure, but it was a very good failure because you know we all know what the takeovers brought. It was also a success because. You know, Newcastle fans have clubbed together to raise over £200,000, which will now be given to charities, has been given to charities right now as we record. And the, the second part of our job was, if that happened, was to sort of have a discussion, make recommendations about the charities that should be supported. And it's all been passed now by supporters. Uh, 97% of people who responded were in favour of this. So... A lot of money going to the Alan Shearer Foundation, the Food Bank, the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation and the Newcastle United Foundation, charities that have an umbilical link to the football club. You know, if we're not saving the club, then we're using this money to help save lives and to help improve life through the prism of the football club. I'm really, really proud of everybody who contributed and 
the lovely thing about it is this money is going to be going on infrastructure projects. So in, in other words, it's not just writing a check to these great, great charities. It's about seeing this money being used on tangible projects that the trust will be able to check in with in years to come. And again, talking about relationships, seeing how that relationship between these charities, the club um, and Newcastle United Supporters Trust can work very briefly just to tie us back into the takeover. When we're talking about meaning, you know, I, I one of the reasons that I kind of love being part of the pledge and part of the, you know, I gave money as well every month to the to, to the to the scheme because that gave me a feeling of Newcastle United as a club. That feeling of being part of something that was more important than you and better than you and bigger than you, but also represented you. I I got that feeling from things that weren't the football club and that was the huge horrible thing about being a Newcastle United supporter was that the club didn't give you those feelings anymore the club now does do that again which is wonderful you know we are part of something bigger and um, you know something that kind of represents us which is very exciting but yeah just really proud of the pledge scheme and can't wait to see how the money's spent and see how that develops over the years to come here here This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. So that's the time-centric view of the takeover. But what does it look like to the rest of the footballing world? Well, luckily, The Athletic have a wealth of talent keeping tabs on exactly this sort of thing. Uh, not least the formidable Ollie Kay, who joins us now. Ollie, nice to have you on. How are we doing? Uh just blown away by being described as formidable. Um, <laughs> just gonna have to gonna have to look it up to see whether that means what I think it does. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're just being sarcastic. No, we've run out of superlatives for well, Chris. You. To be honest, so we had to, we had to shell oh, okay, around a bit. Okay, but. yeah, yeah. That's um, no. I feel like I'm um, I'm going to struggle to fill George's shoes. So um, yeah, don't don't give me the big build up. Just be miserable as sin, and then you'll be doing all right. So <laughs> you'll be fine. Oh, okay, that's I, I can do that. Well, Ollie, you've um, you've been on a bit of a special assignment for the Athletic, haven't you? Over to Saudi Arabia. Tell us all about it. Well, yeah, I um, as the takeover anniversary was approaching, we were thinking of new, you know, different ways to cover the um, to cover the story. And uh, one of my editors, or one of our editors, came up with the idea of sending me to to um, to Saudi Arabia to um, sort of see what. What the mood is there? What 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 the what the feeling is about the Newcastle takeover there? Obviously, we've we've discussed it. You'll have discussed it on here at length. How it's regarded in in Newcastle and 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 
you know, how, you know what, what the mood is there, but we wanted to look at the the other angle, how, how it's perceived in um, in Saudi Arabia. So I I spent um, four or five days in in Riyadh, um, which coincided with the game against Liverpool um, at the end of August. So I watched that in a in a bar with some Newcastle or cafe with some with some Newcastle fans and um, had great. You know, it's really interesting speaking to them. You know, one of them a long-term Newcastle fan, another somebody who's, you know, freely admits he was not into Newcastle at all until the takeover happened, and he suddenly thought, "Wow, we've got a club in the Premier League, a Saudi club in the Premier League," and he's he's now so hooked that he's been to um, St James's Park three times in the last twelve months, um, and was not only that, but he's talking about, um, you know day trips to Hadrian's Wall and North Shields and South Shields and visiting Edinburgh when he's there. Um, he's, you know, he's totally hooked. And that is something that I'd never really sort of, you never really think about that sort of angle um, of the takeover. Um, but that, you know, that that was all interesting. And they'd be, speak to people from the Saudi FA, the national team coach, um, somebody from the government. So it's been, it was a real eye-opener for me. And um yeah, the, the the article I think will be up on the Athletic on Thursday, I believe. Yeah. So I, I hope um, fans will enjoy that. Yeah, I mean we've postponed the publishing of this episode so we don't completely gazump your article, but uh, even even with that in mind, people should obviously read it to get the full picture of uh, of what you're talking about in the context, and they can do that from Thursday, like you said. Uh, what was your overall experience like? Is there not, is there much awareness of Newcastle United in Saudi Arabia now? Well, what I would say is. I think what sets this takeover apart from, from, for example, the Qatari takeover of PSG and the Abu Dhabi takeover of Manchester City is Saudi Arabia is a massive country, you know, population 38 million or something like that. And rather than being an expat population like it generally is in Qatar or, or in um, Abu Dhabi, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's its own population, its own people. Obviously there are some expats, but it's, it's predominantly Saudi people. And the Saudi people are really, really, really into football, like massively into football. The Premier League, yes, but also probably above all the, their own league, the Saudi Pro League. So there's, there's a real football awareness there and a foot, you know, engagement with pa- football and passion for football. Largely, the people that I was meeting there were connected with football or were football fans. So I wasn't meeting a cross-section of society. Yeah. But the impression I was given is that this is this is a really sort of football-mad country in a way that Qatar just isn't and the UAE isn't particularly. So within that, you've got, you know, big established fan bases for Al-Hilal and Al-Itihad and Al-Nasser, the, the, the big Saudi clubs. You've also got people who well, often the same people who also support Real Madrid or Man United or Liverpool or Juventus, Barcelona, whoever, you know, the, the big Euro, big European clubs. And it seems to me, this is the impression I was given by a few different people, that virtually all the, the Saudi fans have gone from being sort of aware of Newcastle in the past to suddenly being really quite engaged with Newcastle. Some of them have already adopted Newcastle as maybe a second team or a third team, in addition to their Saudi team and their, their Spanish team or maybe another Premier League team. Some of them, like um, Abdurman, who I mentioned um, earlier, have just absolutely grabbed um, <laughs> grabbed Newcastle and, and absolutely clinging to it in a really big way. And But the, the impression I, I got 
was that even people who already have a, you know, might support Liverpool or might support Man United or whoever, will probably find themselves really leaning more and more towards Newcastle, particularly if they uh, if they become successful. So not necessarily at the expense of their first love or second love, but they will add that to their to their um, their sort of stable of teams that they support. As British football fans, that sounds weird, supporting two or three different clubs. But you know, I think in other parts of the world, it's quite normal, especially you know that they'll have one and sometimes two Premier League clubs. And I think that's normal. I think Newcastle is probably going to become um, a lot of Saudi fans, second favourite team, third favourite team, maybe in some cases favourite team. And and because of what I mentioned about the, the size of the population and the size of the sort of football community there, you know, there's probably a real commercial benefit there that there probably isn't with with, with some of the other sort of Middle Eastern takeovers we've seen. At the time of the takeover, it was it was basically postponed eighteen months because of the questions about separation between government and PIF. Then eventually, the Premier League accepted the consortium's assurances about separation. I mean, a, a year on, you said you spoke to people at the at the Saudi FA and also in the, in the government. I mean, was was there any conversations about that and about that degree of separation? Obviously, we've had the third strip in the colours of the seemingly resembling the Saudi Arabian strip. There's been the tour to Saudi Arabia early in the year. Newcastle are going to go back there during the World Cup and also the role of Yassel Ramayn, who obviously is on Newcastle's board. Was there anything about that sort of relationship between PIF and the Saudi state? It was stated that the PIF is a different entity to the government ministry. So I spoke to the Deputy Minister for, for Sport. She was saying, well, we you know, we in the, in the Ministry for Sport didn't really know anything about it you know about the takeover we don't know that you know we don't know what PIF does and it was explained to me or no there was a there was a article I think it was a financial times article I, I read where it was sort of the PIF was described as a black box uh, opaque you know the rest of the government even doesn't know what's what what's going on um, inside the PIF so to me I mean I I would say if if the Premier League were looking for assurances that the PIF was not connected to the um, to, to the Saudi government, I, I would say, well, it sounds to me like they've they've ended up just sort of taking the Saudis' word for that. I think it's, it's clear that the PIF is incredibly influential in in Saudi government, but you can say it's separate because it's not it's not the same entity. So, I think um, I'm not really satisfied that there's the um, massive separation that you would think that those sort of laws are designed to um, preclude. But what I think doesn't really matter at all, does it? It's, it, it the fact is, when we were, you know, I was debating, or pe- people were asking my opinion of, of the takeover, and I was, I was explaining why, why there is resistance to it and, and um, what, why it hasn't sort of been universally um, welcomed in, in England and, and I'm sort of raising sort of questions about the way football is regulated and, and and all kinds of very boring stuff, and they're saying, yeah, but you, your your rules allowed it, you know, you, you, the, the Premier League's rules allowed it, so it's so it's fine. And I said, well, you know, there are an awful lot of things that that Premier League regulations allow, which I think maybe they shouldn't. So um, yeah, it, it was diff- it, it was interesting just just debating it with with some of the Saudi people because yeah, I'm I'm not sort of head over heels with the idea of sovereign wealth funds buying football clubs or American vulture capitalists or venture capitalists um, buying clubs 
or tight-fisted sports retail tycoons buying, buying football clubs. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not picking sides here. I, I just, no, of course. I, I don't really like the model. So, um, yeah, I, I found myself debating that a few times. With regards to the new owners, Ollie, as well, obviously we're a year on from from them taking over the, the, the club. What's been your sort of take on the performance so far of the owners? And of course, they brought in Eddie Howe, they've brought in Dan Ashworth and Darren Eels as well. Uh, they've made some signings and they've kind of turned the team's fortunes around. What, what's your view on that so far? I think it's probably very similar to yours and Chris's and George's. I, I think they've been really sensible. I think they've been impressively sensible. There are so many takeovers. You know, you see a lot of takeovers happen and you just think, they look, you know, this regime just looks like it's ripe for milking by agents, by by other clubs. They're going to make spend two or three years making completely crass decisions. Um, and I think maybe maybe in the Newcastle case, maybe, maybe they were helped by the fact they had such a long run up at it, and and they they, they were able to sort of it, it didn't just happen overnight. It was it was the opposite of that. So they've gone in and they've been really sensible. I was well in favour of the Eddie Howe appointment. I really rate Eddie Howe highly. I was extremely in favour as well of the Dashworth appointment. You know, two really, really sensible, level-headed guys who will want to build the club. If they'd gone for a different type of manager, they would have ended up going for different types of players in that first transfer window and the second transfer window. And I think even if you look at Manchester City, who's building... Post takeover, I was really, you know, everybody's really impressed by, it, and that's become almost the blueprint to do. And Chelsea's as well, when Abramovich took over, both of those were very much led by agent at times in those first couple of. They made some very good signings, both of them, but they also made some really kind of bad signings that were millstones around the club's neck for for a number of years, and there wasn't really a clear strategy for a while. And I think with Newcastle, it's just been really sensible signings, um, some exciting signings, but exciting sensible signings and it's all been very Dan Ashworth all been very Eddie Howe and even you know I don't imagine Chris Wood will will be sort of contributing much um over the course of you know the next couple of years or so but I think he was he was a sort of well thought out pragmatic sort of 25 million pound um uh, buy at the time you know it, it wasn't a case of giving somebody a really long contract on mega money Yes, the big tra- the transfer um, fee was w- w- was big, but it was um, it was also you know it weakened Burnley and it strengthened Newcastle for the rest of that season. So that was that worked really. And in ch- just in terms of the overall direction, I think it's been j- just you know it's steady because it's it's Eddie Howe, it's Dan Ashworth. They are building really sensibly. I think maybe if they'd gone really kind of gone for it and really tried to blow other clubs out of the water this this summer and spent and spent more, which obviously is harder to do now with FFP. Um, I think maybe maybe we'd be talking about challenging harder for top four, top five, top six this year. But I think what they're trying to do is build sustainably and, and be in a strong place in twelve months' time, two years' time, five years' time. I'm impressed, basically. I was going to say it sounds like the animals in, in your house are impressed as well. I don't know if that's trying to get involved. Here, but, uh, well, <laughs> it's a black cat, so is that does that? If it walks across the screen in front of you, I think you're in trouble, Holly. To be honest, and, uh, yeah, yeah, well, he, yeah. He does that all day, and that probably explains a lot. No, I don't, I, I don't know if he's if he's a Sunderland fan. He's never 
He's never articulated that, but um, how would I know? So, yeah, seven league fixtures before the World Cup left for Newcastle now, and then they've also got Crystal Palace in in the League Cup. It feels like it could be quite an important period for Newcastle-Brentford at home next up. At uh, Fulham, Newcastle were so comfortable that he was able to take off Wilson and Bruno and the hour mark, and then Alan Maximan should hopefully be just about back. Joe Linton's knee injury back as well. Ollie, between now and the World Cup, I mean, Newcastle are seventh at the minute. If there, if there was seventh come, come the World Cup, would that be a surprise for you? Or do you, do you think, given the, the sort of trajectory that they're on, do you think that would that would sort of be the direction they'll be heading in? I think they want to be in that kind of position. I mean, you know, I think it's really hard to compete with the with the top six teams, or the, the established big six teams. And um, I use that phrase not, Sort of sycophantically, but but just because they are so rich, they are so powerful, and they they generally finish in the top six. I think for Newcastle to get into the top six is a real you know it's a really tough challenge. But they look like they could well be either challenging to do that or the best of the rest, which I think, given where they were this time last year, is um, is is pretty impressive. And I know people will say, well, they've spent loads of money, but they haven't spent off the scale like Manchester City did post-2008 or Chelsea did post-2003. They haven't been been able to though, have they either? That's the thing because of the way things have changed financially. They they just haven't been able to do it. No, and and, they've spent a lot, but they've spent a lot lot on a a squad that have been completely underinvested in over the previous, well, certainly the previous decade, but previous 15 years, you could even maybe say even longer than that. So I think think it's, if they're challenging for top six or, or or that sort of best of the rest tag that was West Ham and Leicester at various times over, over the last couple of years or challenging in the cups, you know, that that wouldn't go amiss either, would it? Um Absolutely. I think that's I think that's really impressive. And you look at those these next few games and you know there are a couple of winnable looking ones as well as exciting games against Man United and Spurs. And I think I think if they'd lost so if they'd lost on on Saturday at Fulham, I think I think people would suddenly start to be asking questions about sort of the direction and maybe not 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 particularly about Eddie Howe or, or whatever but about how long it's taking to sort of build up but I think because of the way the league is you win you win one game and you go up about four places and you win a game as emphatically as that and with beautiful goals like the armor on one and I think the mood has just massively changed isn't it and and um, I expect going into that game against Brentford on Saturday it's going to be you know Newcastle fans are really going to be sort of looking looking onwards and upwards, aren't they? Absolutely. Uh, right then, Ollie, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks very much for uh, for coming on and thank you for your time. Uh, remember, if you want to check out Ollie's piece, that will be live on Thursday. There's plenty of great writing on The Athletic this week, marking the anniversary of the takeover as well. To read all of that and take advantage of ad-free versions of The Athletic's podcasts, uh, become a subscriber today and make sure you go to theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod where you can get our introductory offer price of just £1 a month for the first six months Come on you Maggie's So that's it, Chris. Uh, lovely to hear from Ollie there. Very interesting stuff from traveling over to Saudi and stuff. I'm sure that piece is going to be a fantastic read. Yeah, very, very interesting. And to get just outside of, obviously, we talk about it from in the Newcastle bubble. But remember, last year, this was a huge story. I mean, this was a worldwide news. 
um, and to actually hear what, what it actually is like in, in Saudi Arabia. Has Newcastle really made any sort of an impression on the Saudi population? So I'm very much looking forward to that piece as well and to, to, to reading uh, what Ali found when he was out there. Definitely. How's the, uh, how's the pie tasting, Chris? I've got a second serving coming up later on of that uh, humble pie. It tastes, tastes a little bit bitter, although at the same time I am willing and receptive to doing it as much as possible this evening. If Miguel Almiro wants to score in every single game between oh, now and the end of the Chris. season, then I will be even oh, fatter Chris, than I am now. Your sweetest so. custard and just as thick. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, man. I'm sure Miggy won't show you up again uh, against Brentford at the weekend. Definitely not. That's not going to happen, is it? Uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening to Pod on the Time. Thanks, Ollie Kay, for coming on. And we shall speak to you very, very soon from myself and Chris. Uh, it's a very hearty goodbye. Ta ta. The Athletic.